All right, well, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll read verses 18 and 19 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. There the word of Christ says this. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we pray today that you might teach us and guide us, Lord, into all wisdom and into all truth. Lord, show us what it is for, on the one hand, the former commandment to be set aside. Lord, how it is that through works of the law, no human being could be declared righteous in your sight. Lord, show us how the law, though a perfect standard and rule of righteousness, Lord, is weak and useless at perfecting people. Lord, it is weakened because of our own flesh and because the law is not given to righteous men but to sinners, to the unjust. Lord, teach us how it is that our only hope can be found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, for truly He is the only source, the only hope of salvation for any of Adam's fallen race. And Lord, may we have an even greater confidence in Him. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday we began examining these two verses where the apostle is laying down the two main points that he's making here. He says on the one hand, there's the setting aside of the former commandment. And then on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. We began addressing the first of these, the setting aside of the former commandment. Here we saw that the former commandment in verse 18 is the same as the law in 19. And it is referring to that covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. The law of commandments contained in ordinances or the old covenant, it is the law of Moses, consisting of both a moral code which obligates men under its authority to perfectly obey its precepts. The law does reveal to us a perfect standard of righteousness, and it offers a reward, the reward of life, to all who keep perfectly its precepts. The law says, do this and live. The law also offers punishment and curses with death those who do not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. And this is why the law says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So there is this moral component to the law. It also consisted of various ceremonies that accompanied the law of Moses. The Levitical priesthood, the temple worship, the sacrificial system, and others of the sort. All of this has been set aside by the coming of Jesus Christ. For he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He perfectly obeyed his commandments and he suffered the penalty for its violation. And this he did on our behalf to release us and to set us free from the curse of the law. It says in Romans 8, 3 and 4, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law of Moses no longer has authority over the church of Christ. It no longer has the power to condemn, for Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has brought the law to its end by fulfilling its righteous requirements and by suffering its penalty on our behalf. Also, the many shadows and types set forth in the law, Christ also has accomplished those. They also have been set aside and are no longer needed for the worship of the church. They were necessary until the coming of the promised seed into the world, until the substance should be revealed. But now that Christ has come, now that the substance has been manifest, these shadows and types that could never atone for sin are no longer needed for the worship of God's people. And this is where we ended last week. So we'll pick up today actually with a continuation of the very end of last week's sermon. We had to stop short because of that snow, but it all flows together and we'll continue and deal today with why it is that the law is weak and useless, right? Why is it said that the law is weak and useless? And then how has God manifested that the law has indeed been set aside? So let's look again at Hebrews 7 verse 18. It says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, because of its weakness and uselessness. Here, this setting aside we dealt with last week, but also it should be pointed out that the setting aside of the former commandment, God has manifested this, God has proven this, it has been revealed by God in the world in four different ways. Four different ways that prove or show that the former commandment, the law of Moses, no longer has the authority that it exercised under the old covenant. That the old covenant has faded away and that it has been replaced by the new covenant. So how then is this setting aside of the law, how has it been manifested in the world? Well, first, it was made known in the preaching of the gospel. One of the points that the apostles made in their preaching of the gospel after the day of Pentecost was that this new covenant is doing for us what could never be done under the law of Moses. What we could never attain for under that covenant, it has been brought about through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Acts 13, Acts 13, 38 to 39. They are proclaiming a freedom from these things. Acts 13, 38 to 39 says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. There in Christ, the salvation that comes in his name there is a freedom, a release from all of the things that we could not be released from under the law of Moses. There is a freedom from its authority, from its power to condemn, from its bondage and slavery that it put the people under, and from its shadows and its types. When they were setting forth the gospel and proclaiming these things, they were proclaiming a freedom to the people. Secondly, this has been manifested in the establishment of new ordinances for worship. With the new covenant and with the inauguration of it, there is a change in the worship of the people. And there are new ordinances that accompany the new covenant. 
We remember in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, it says there that you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. If we are not to add to and we are not to take away, then on what authority does Jesus replace these ordinances with new ones? Because he does not command and expect the Gentiles to be circumcised. But that was required of Israel under the Old Covenant. He also expects us to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But never is it said of Israel that they are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how is it then that this is the case? If we are not to take away, and if we are not to add to, how is it that circumcision has been taken away? How is it that the food laws have been taken away? How is it that the temple worship has been taken away and that these have been replaced with new ordinances like baptism and like the new the Lord's Supper? And this is because a new order has been clearly established in the church, thus proving that there is a change of law. The law of Moses has been set aside and there has been a change. There's a new law that has been instituted, which is under the priesthood of Christ. In Hebrews 7, we remember that when there is a change of priesthood, there is of necessity what? There is a change of law as well. Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. He is the Lord of the church, and he has the right as Lord of the church and as the administrator of the new covenant to abolish the ordinances of the old covenant and establish new ones in accordance with the new covenant. John 4, 21. John 4, 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But isn't it required for them to worship the Father in Jerusalem under the Old Covenant? Absolutely it is. But why is it that Jesus is saying now it is not required? Because it is a new covenant. And there are new ordinances. And there are old ones that do no longer apply. There is a change of priesthood. And there is of necessity a change of law as well. Mark seven nineteen. Thus he declared all foods clean. Was that the same as it was under the Old Covenant? In the Old Covenant, all foods were not clean. There were dietary regulations. There were food laws. There were unclean things that they could not partake of under the Old Covenant. Yet now, Jesus is declaring that those things that were not permissible under the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, we may eat of these things freely. And this is further confirmed in Acts chapter 10 and 11 with Peter when he is to go to Cornelius and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And there he is to participate and to eat with them, even eating unclean foods that he had never eaten before. But if you cannot add to and if you cannot take away, then how is this happening? Because it is a new law. There is a change of priesthood. There is a change of law as well. Also in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, when Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples... He did not say, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation, and circumcise them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What did he command them to do? Not circumcise them, but to what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He did not command us to continue keeping the Passover, but rather he commanded us to keep the Lord's Supper, and that the cup represents the new covenant in his blood. 
Again, if one cannot add to and one cannot take away from the law, then how was Jesus able to take away and add new ordinances, to add baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to take away old things like food laws, like circumcision, like temple worship, like the Levitical priesthood? How is he able to do this without being a transgressor of the law? And this is because Jesus did not add to the law of Moses, and he did not take away from the law of Moses. While that law was in force, while it had authority over the people, then its precepts were to be strictly followed. But when there is a change of priesthood, there is of necessity a change of law as well. And the covenant that is regulating and ruling over the church from the inauguration that came through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not the same covenant that they were under from Sinai until his coming. It is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. And this new covenant has a law that accompanies it as well, based upon not the priesthood of Levi, which was the basis of which they received the law of Moses, but based upon the priesthood of Jesus Christ, a new priesthood for a new covenant that has a new law, a new order, a new system of ordinances consistent with this age of the church, consistent with the new covenant. And this has been established by Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. And in this, it shows, it proves that the old has been set aside. The former commandment has been set aside. Thirdly, a third way that this was manifested, the inclusion of the Gentiles manifested or proved that the law was set aside. The law itself, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, in ordinances according to Ephesians chapter 2, was itself a barrier, it was a wall of separation that made a distinction and a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. But now that law of commandment contained in ordinances has been torn down. It has been removed so that now in the one body of Christ, Jew and Gentiles dwell together in unity and in harmony together. And when the gospel went to the Gentiles, and when the Gentiles were converted and believed in Christ, they were never obligated by the apostles to become Jews. They were not obligated to submit to the law of Moses. Now, under the old covenant, from Moses until Christ, if a Gentile wanted to become a proselyte and become Jewish, then he had to submit himself to regulations of the old covenant. He would have to be circumcised. He would have to submit to these various ordinances and rules and laws that were a part of the law of Moses. But after the coming of Christ, when the apostles are preaching the gospel into the world, do they ever require and expect the Gentile Christians to be circumcised, to become Jewish, to submit to the law of Moses? Not only did they not require this, they fought against it. They fought against it very hard, especially on the matter of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses, that we cannot put this bondage, this slavery upon the Gentiles. It is an undermining, a reversion of the progression of redemption. Acts chapter 10, 44 to 48, here the Spirit of Christ makes this very clear. Acts 10, 44. Acts chapter 10, 
verses 44 to 48. Forty-four, Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Here, when the Gentiles are converted through the preaching and through the ministry of the apostle Peter, the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, are amazed that the Holy Spirit is falling upon them just as it did upon the Jewish Christians. And then Peter has them baptized. How can we forbid them from being baptized? It's obvious that they are believers because the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them, but he says nothing about them being what? Nothing about circumcision is mentioned here. Also, chapter 11, Acts 11, verses 15 to 18. Here, Peter, counting what happened, back to... And he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God has granted it to them without circumcision. Though they were uncircumcised, they have received repentance leading to life. They are equal participators in the new covenant, in the blessings of the salvation that comes through Christ. Then one last place, Acts 15, verses 6 to 11. 15, 6 to 11. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And this was in relationship to forcing them, are they required to be circumcised in order to be saved? And Peter is showing that no, we cannot expect this We cannot place this burden, this bondage upon them that neither us nor our fathers have ever been able to bear. That they're going to be justified, they're going to be saved by faith, just as we were. Not through circumcision. And they did not expect or require them to be circumcised. The preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, their belief in that gospel, granted to them an equal interest with believing Jews to the promise made to Abraham. Right? They always go back 
to the covenant of Abraham. This is where the Gentiles are grafted in. They have an equal share with the covenant that God made to Abraham 430 years before the giving of the law at Sinai. They were received into that covenant, not into the covenant at Sinai. They were not given a parcel of land in the land of Israel. They were not expected to relocate their families closer to Jerusalem so that they could go there and worship. They were not required to be circumcised and to follow all the laws of the law of Moses that were received at Sinai. However, if Sinai still had authority over the church, then the Gentiles would be obligated to do those things. And so would we as well. We would be obligated to submit to its demands. But we see that in the early days of the church, amongst the apostles, as the Gentiles are being brought in, no demands of this sort were made, proving that the former commandment had been set aside. And then fourthly, a fourth way that God manifested the former commandment had been set aside was when he destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple and dispersed the Levitical priesthood. A greater part of the law of Moses cannot even be kept today. It is not even possible for them to keep it today because there is no temple. And even if there was a temple rebuilt, there would be no one qualified to serve as priest in that temple. God set it aside, he forced them to set it aside, and it has been set aside for over 2,000 years now because it no longer has authority over the church. In this way then, God has declared that the law of Moses, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, the old covenant has been abolished in the flesh of Christ. And this is for our benefit. Its abolishment was necessary for our full redemption because the law cannot make us perfect. A better hope was needed to serve as the basis by which we draw near to God. And this better hope is our Lord Jesus Christ, who has himself fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. He has canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us. He's taken these things out of the way, having nailed them to his cross. This is the better hope, and this is a hope that could not be realized so long as the law was in force. So long as the law was maintained, the better hope could not be brought in. But for the better hope to be brought in, it must be set aside for our redemption and for our advantage. Notice why this is for our benefit. Notice in verse 18, he says, There is the setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. The former commandment, according to the apostle, is referred to as weak and it is useless. And this is that law of Moses described here by our apostle in these ways, which is why it is fit to be set aside. It needs to be set aside. Now, we must clearly understand and determine in what sense does the apostle mean that the law is weak and useless? What does he mean when he says these things? We remember from last week, Perhaps you do, maybe you don't. But I remember Romans chapter 7, verses 6 to 11. Romans 7, 6 to 11, there the law is referred to as holy, righteous, good, and it's referred to as spiritual. 
These are the ways he describes the law in that context. And in Romans 7, the apostle means this in regards to the law in and of itself. Because the law comes from God, it is holy because God is holy. It is righteous because God is righteous. Right? It is good because God is good. It is spiritual because God is spirit. God is all of these things, and whatever proceeds from God all has these characteristics and these qualities as well. It is a perfect law, an unadulterated standard of righteousness. And in and of itself, the law is a deposit of wisdom, holiness, and truth from God. However, this good law is weak and useless in respect to sinners. That's what he means. As it relates or in respect to sinners, it is weak and useless in two ways. First, what is the purpose of the law? What is the end of the law? But to establish righteousness. This is the purpose of the law, is for the establishment, for the producing of righteousness. Yet, because this good law comes to sinful men, right? The law is not coming to good men, to innocent men, to righteous men, to uncorrupted men. The law, when it was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, was given to sinful men who were already in a state of sin, who are unable and completely incapacitated from keeping its precepts, and so it will never achieve the end for which it is pronounced. It will never produce righteousness in men, but instead, what will it always produce? Sin, more and more sin. When the law was given at Sinai, The men to whom it was given were already in a state of sin. The nature of man was defiled from Genesis 3 onward. For over 4,000 years of human history, man had been corrupted by sin when the law was given in the form that it was given at Mount Sinai. And so that law was weak and useless because it never produced righteousness in a single person to who was under its authority under the old covenant. Not one Jew from Moses to Christ in all of Israel's history, there wasn't a single person under the old covenant, under the law of Moses that was ever declared righteous by their works of the law. For although the law was a perfect rule of righteousness, it could never be a source or means of righteousness for those who were previously defiled by the corruption of sin. And because of that, it is weak and useless to sinners. That's what we read earlier in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It is the flesh, it is sin, that weakens the law. The law was weakened by the flesh. The law, though prescribing a perfect standard of righteousness, does not empower men to keep its precepts. It does not give men the ability to obey And this has been completely forfeited, completely lost by the entrance of sin so that it is useless and weak as a means of producing righteousness in men. It never results in righteousness. Whenever the law is given to any people, it doesn't matter who we give it to. It will never lead to their righteousness, but it will only aggravate sin within them. This is what Romans 7 talks about. The law awakens sin. The law excites sin. 
He says there, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of what? Covetousness, right? It all, it produces it. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. This is what the law does to sinful man. And so the law, which in and of itself is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual, has become unto sinners weak and useless, because by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, but rather through the law comes knowledge of sin. So first, the law is weak and useless as a means or as a source of producing righteousness in men. Secondly, the law is weak and useless as a means to remove sin and its guilt. Right? Again, the law is not coming to innocent men. It's not coming to righteous men. But it is coming to sinful men. Sinners who are in need of justification. Sinners who are in need of expiation. They need their sins and the guilt of their sin to be removed. How can any sinner ever entertain a future of righteousness so long as he has the guilt of his former and present sins? Unless our guilt is removed, unless our sins are atoned for, there can be no righteousness. The moral law of God makes no provision for the removal of sin. The Ten Commandments contain no provision for the atonement or the removal of sin. It does contain the standard of righteousness, and it does contain a blessing for those who keep it. But what else does it contain? A curse for those who disobey. And how many of the Ten Commandments do we have to disobey to come under the curse of the law? Only one, and only one one time. Because if you do not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to perform them, then you are under its curse. Unless our guilt is removed, unless our sins are atoned for, we cannot be made righteous. And the law provides no provision for these things. It only pronounces curses upon those who are guilty of violating its precepts. Now, under the law of Moses, there was atonement provided through these ceremonies, through the sacrifices, because of the defilement of sin. But those ceremonies were in and of themselves insufficient. They could not remove the guilt of sin. They could not take away and purify and cleanse the conscience of the worshipers. At best, the ceremonies of the Old Covenant could represent atonement, but they could never actually accomplish it. They could never produce the atonement that they represented. Hebrews chapter 10 by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 10, we'll have this passage memorized because we read it just about every week. But it is so important for understanding these things. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. The sacrifices that were provided under the old covenant for the sins, for the atonement of the people, could never actually produce it. They could never take away their sins. And so in those things, there was a reminder to them yearly of the reality of their sin. It did not give to them the perfect peace that we have when we come to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, there is no reminder of our sin, but we see in Him that all of our sins have been atoned for. Yet these things were weak and useless because they could never grant to the people the same certainty because it was a reminder of their sins. Because they all knew it is impossible for the blood of a bull or a goat to take away and to remove my sins. How many sins under the old covenant were ever atoned for by the blood of animals? None. Zero. Not one single sin in the sight of God. Now, ceremonially, symbolically, outwardly, God would receive them in a sense where they could come to the temple, but not into the true temple, right? This could not be the basis for their atonement and for their salvation. The guilt of sin could never be removed under those ceremonies. They are shadows and types under the law, but they cannot perfect those who draw near to God. This is why it is weak and useless. It cannot establish men in righteousness because the men that it comes to are already in a state of sin. And then it cannot remove the guilt of their sin because what provisions are made under the law of Moses for atonement cannot actually produce it, cannot effectuate it because it is the blood of bulls and goats offered on a temple, in a temple on earth by men who themselves are sinful. So how could we ever have hope of the guilt of our sin removed and be established in righteousness through any of these things? But this is what we need if we're going to draw near to God. If we are going to draw near to God, then two things must be true of us. We must be righteous. We must be made righteous in the sight of God if we are going to draw near to Him. And then because of sin, there must be atonement. Our sin must be removed. We have to have both of these components in order to draw near to God. The removal of our sin and the establishment of true righteousness within us. Without these, we cannot be accepted into God's presence. We cannot have his love, his favor, but only wrath, judgment, and condemnation. Can the law produce either one of these for us? No, it is impossible. The law is weak and useless in respect to sinful men in both regards. The law can show men the standard of righteousness, but it does not enable them to keep it, and it never establishes them in that righteousness. The law can teach and represent atonement for sin, but it cannot actually accomplish it. It could never produce righteousness in men, nor could it accomplish atonement on their behalf. And it is in this state that the apostle pronounces the law weak and useless. Weak and useless unto sinners as regards salvation. So then we might ask, then why was it given? Why did God give a law that can never produce righteousness and that could never atone for sin? Why did he rule and put this covenant in place for 1,400 years over the people of Israel why did he do it 
in this way? Well, first, anytime we ask these questions, we always have to start with, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He can do whatever he wants, right? And we can't question. But if we're asking in a sincere way, then what is the purpose of this? Then that is good and fine for us to do so. And the Bible does teach us and give us instructions as to why the law was put in place. Galatians 3.19. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. He anticipates this very question. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Here, the apostle is asking the very same question. He's talking about inheritance. The inheritance of eternal life was never based upon law-keeping, but it was always based upon the promise, a promise that God gave to Abraham 430 years before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Well, if it was based upon that promise, then why ever put the law in place, right? Why was the law added? Why was it given in this intermediate period between the giving of the promise and the promise being fulfilled in Christ for 1,400 years. And he tells us here, it was added because of transgressions. Because of sin, until the promised seed should be revealed, until Christ should come into the world. And in this way, the law has a fourfold purpose. Four reasons as to why the law was put in place until the coming seed. First, to teach the nature of sin. The old covenant, the purpose of that covenant was to teach and to manifest to the people the nature of sin. So that sin, its grotesqueness, what it is, might be more clearly seen and more clearly revealed. Sin was in the world before the law was given. That is an indisputable fact. From Adam to Moses... All men during that period of time, 4,000 years, all men during that period of time were born dead in their trespasses and sins. They lived in sin. They were in need of redemption. All of them were guilty before God. The law was given to make this reality more obvious, to make it more clear, to manifest it in a greater way, to increase sinfulness and reveal the nature of sin to mankind. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And verse 20 says this. Romans 5. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law came to increase transgressions to make sin more obvious, more clear, more manifest, so that it might serve as a greater backdrop to the grace that would come after it, so that grace would be more spectacular to us. When we see our sin in light of the law, what happens to the magnitude of our sin? It increases. It becomes greater. It becomes more gross to us. And the greater our sin is, the more beautiful, the more wonderful is the grace of God given to us. The law makes this reality more clear. Also, Romans 7, verses 7 to 13. We referenced this earlier. 
Romans 7, 7 to 13, is teaching the same truth, the same reality. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandments, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. The commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Through the commandment, sin becomes utterly sinful. It is manifested or revealed, the nature of it is more clearly perceived with the commandment telling us, you shall not do this. Because then there's no excuse, right? There's no excuse at all. The natural law tells us these things as well. But the law of God revealed, written in tablets of stones, is a greater revelation of this that we also violate as well. And so we're guilty on both accounts. And it makes men utterly sinful. This is the purpose, the first purpose, of the giving of the law. To reveal or to teach the nature of sin. To make sin utterly sinful. A second reason for the giving of the law is to restrain sin. To restrain sin. The threats and punishments that accompanied the law of Moses served as a buffer against the lust of the men of Israel. Now again, we know that they were very lustful people and that they were very hard-hearted. However, without the law constraining them, their sins would have been so gross, so great, that God's judgment would have come upon them to their own destruction. And so it was there to restrain their sin until the Christ could come into the world, to preserve them as a people until the revealing of the Christ. This is God's purpose for Israel. Their purpose in the chain of redemption, in what God is doing, is the vehicle or means, the nation, in which the Christ is going to come into the world. And so in order to restrain them, to put a curb upon their lust and their sin, God accompanied the law with many threats and punishments that was to uh, serve as this buffer. While the law cannot change the heart of man, it is powerless to produce righteousness in him. It is able through fear of death and punishment to restrain evil to an extent so that the people do not descend completely and perpetually into untold debauchery. This is the way it would be if there was not some law to restrain the hearts of men. 1 Timothy chapter 1 speaks of this use or purpose of the law. 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. It says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. 
according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law is not made for the righteous, but for lawless, rebellious people to restrain and to punish their sin. Third, a third reason for the giving of the law is to represent the atonement that was to be accomplished by Jesus Christ. The law, though itself, could never accomplish atonement. It could represent, by way of shadows and types, the atonement that would be accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Levitical priesthood could never serve as the mediator between God and man. It is impossible for them to serve in that role. That position can only be occupied by one person. And who is the only person that can serve as the mediator between God and man? Well, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So they could never serve and fulfill that office or that role of mediator. But they could represent it by way of an illustration, by way of a shadow and type. They could communicate to the people some component or some aspect of the work of Christ. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of the people. Only one source of blood can do that. And what is the only blood that can wash all of our sins away? Only the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood, the blood of bulls and goats, could never do those things. However, they could represent, they could serve as an illustration to teach to the people something about the need of atonement, about the need of sacrifice, of the need of substitution, of the need of the shedding of blood. And in that way, they were beneficial to the people. And this was true of all of the shadows and types of the Old Covenant. They were visible, physical pictures. They could never accomplish the true reality, but they could set it forth to the people by way of illustration. And that would be a third use of the law. And then a last one, a fourth. And this is to shut the mouth of men. To shut the mouth of every man. This is the problem with men. Our mouths, right? They get us in so much trouble. And we believe that we are righteous, that we are good people, and that God owes us good, that he should receive us into his presence, that all of us deserve to go to heaven because we're such good and wonderful people. The law is given to shut the mouths of men and to bind the whole world under condemnation and judgment. No one reading the law and truly examining his life Judging his life in light of the standards of righteousness prescribed in the law. Seeing the curses and the judgment that the law pronounces upon transgressors, what man honestly, sincerely could ever walk away from reading the law and conclude that he is righteous in the sight of God, that God owes him eternal life? All we can do when we judge ourselves truly is hold our mouth and be in silence before God. All boasting, all claims of righteousness, all of it must cease, and we must be shut up in our sin. And it is the law that accomplishes this reality on earth. It is what is given to us to reveal our depravity, that we are indeed children of wrath who deserve to be condemned by God. Until a man is convinced of his own unrighteousness, he will never look for a source of righteousness outside of himself. And it is the law that closes the mouth of every man. It binds men under guilt and condemnation. 
This is what it says in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. There it says, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And the law speaks to those who are under it, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. In this way, the law is beneficial, not as a source of righteousness, but as a mirror, showing to us the nature and reality of our own sin, revealing to us how putrid, how vile, how detestable we truly are in the sight of God. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until we see ourselves as we are, we will never run to the cross for salvation, for grace, for the forgiveness of sins. And this is why Galatians 3.24 says that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law is a schoolmaster, a teacher, a tutor, a guide who teaches us the reality of sin, teaches us the impossibility of being justified in God's sight by our own works. It leaves us under the condemnation of God and it points us to Jesus Christ. It leads us to the gospel of Christ and that is where we learn how all of our sins can be forgiven. That is where we learn how we can be made righteous in the sight of God, not by our own works, but by faith in Jesus Christ his death, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. The law brings us to the same place that it brought Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what did he pronounce upon himself? He said, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The law brings us to the same place as the tax collector, who would not even look up into heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In this way, the law is useful. It is beneficial. It is a blessing to us in this way to convince us of sin, to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But as a source or means of establishing our own righteousness, as a source or means of removing the defilement of sin, It is weak and it is useless to accomplish these things. Which is why he says in Hebrews 7, 19, the law made nothing perfect. When he says it's weak and useless, that's what he means. The law makes nothing perfect. If we're going to dwell with God, we must be perfect. We must be righteous. The wicked cannot dwell in his presence. We cannot stand in God's presence. Only the righteous, only the pure in heart shall see God. And does that describe any of us in our natural state? None of us is that applied to. None of us are pure in heart. None of us have clean hands and a pure heart. We are all defiled because of the corruption of sin. As the means, the basis for making ourselves righteous, the law will never bring this about. It won't bring it about. It'll actually make it worse. It'll excite more sin in us and leave us more condemned, right, is what it will produce in us. And the law was never given 
in order to produce righteousness in men. It was not given to Israel so that they might justify themselves by their own works. That is an unlawful use of the law. And that's what we read earlier for 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. The law is good if one uses it what? Lawfully. You have to use it lawfully. The same as in your home. A dishwasher is good for washing dishes, but it is very poor at cooking a steak. If you try to cook a steak in your dishwasher, you're going to be very disappointed. The grill is very good at cooking a steak, but it is very poor for washing dishes or doing anything else. Right? Whatever it is, it has a purpose, it has a use, and it must be used according to its purpose. The same thing with the law. The law made nothing perfect. The law was not given to make men perfect. The law was not given so that we might establish our own righteousness. And if we seek to do so through the law, then we will be sorely disappointed because we will never arrive at the righteousness that we are seeking. This is what Israel did. This is what it says in Romans chapter 9. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They were seeking righteousness from the law, but they failed to obtain what they were seeking. Why did they fail to obtain it? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. They sought righteousness by their own works, and they failed to obtain the righteousness in the law. Because the only way that we can be made righteous is not through our own works, but through faith. They stumbled over the stumbling block, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They pursued it. They failed They did not succeed at obtaining it because they produced it by their own works, not by faith. The law never given so that we might be made righteous through our obedience to it. Because the law makes nothing perfect. However, there is one who can make us perfect. There is a source that God has provided a means by which imperfect men, by which sinners, unrighteous men, can be made righteous in the sight of God. And it is only through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is not through our own efforts. It's not through our works. It's not through anything that we do. It is through what He has done on our behalf. And it is through faith in Him that we can be made righteous, that we can be delivered from everything that we could not be delivered from through the law of Moses. And this is the better hope in that we will turn to next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today, Lord, confessing, Lord, that your law is holy, righteous, and good. Lord, it is a spiritual law. And if we, in our natural state, were a holy and righteous, good, and spiritual people, then certainly that law could be a source or a means of establishing or of manifesting the righteousness that we have. But Lord, there's nothing that's further from what we are in our natural state than holy, righteous, and good. Lord, we are not a spiritual people, but an unspiritual people. And Lord, there is nothing that we can do to deliver ourselves from the guilt of our sin. And Lord, we confess that there is nothing that we can do to establish a righteousness and a perfection in our own life that is acceptable to you. Lord, we are undone. We are a people of unclean lips. Lord, we dwell among a people of unclean lips. 
And Lord, all that we can say to you, Lord, all that we can ask is that you might be merciful to sinners. Lord, we thank you that you have provided a way, Lord, a way in which we can be made perfect, not through our obedience to the law, but through the obedience of Christ, through the righteousness of the one, through his death and his resurrection. Lord, we can be delivered from all that we could not be delivered from under the law of Moses. And Lord, we thank you that you have granted this great salvation to us. Lord, we did not earn it. We did not work for it. Lord, we did not purchase it. But Lord, you have freely given it to us by producing faith within us and causing all of the blessings of salvation. Lord, all of the righteousness of Christ to be credited to our account. Lord, by taking and removing all of the defilements of our sin and the guilt placing it upon him and nailing it to the cross. Lord, this is a wondrous love that you have given to us, that you would send your own son into the world that we might live through him. And Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray, Lord, that we would live in light of this truth, Lord, of this reality. Lord, that we would live, Lord, under this freedom and liberty that you've given to us. Lord, not freedom to sin, but freedom to live to you, to live to righteousness. Lord, to love you and to serve you. And so, Father, we pray that you might help us to understand more and more your love that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. And, Lord, preserve and protect us from, Lord, the desires and the impulses of the flesh that always want to to base our acceptance before you upon something that we have done. Lord, may we not live under this law-keeping, but rather live under the gospel. And Lord, the salvation that we have and the acceptance that we have in your sight on the basis of Christ. So Lord, may we see that our salvation, Lord, our righteousness is sitting at your right hand even today and that it is only through him that we are able to offer prayers to you, that we are able to worship you, that we are able to draw near to you today. And Lord, may we draw near to you each and every day, only on the basis of Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.